0: Hi there, this is Robert Polly of the Seventh Avenue Project, here to explain that parts of this interview with NPR's Michelle Norris were previously broadcast on our public radio pledge drive show in October 2010. What you're about to hear is a longer version of that interview. Michelle and I discussed her new book, The Grace of Silence. It's both a family memoir and a social history a look at America's racial past through the experience of Michelle's own African American parents and grandparents. We also talked a bit about her career as a journalist and her own approach to radio. Enjoy. Uh, Michelle, thanks for taking this time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You are on a book tour.
1: A rather large one, yes. (laughs) I'm visiting more than 30 cities over the fall and the winter.
0: Has the title of your book, um, The Grace of Silence, taken on kind of a painful irony?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, no, because it's a blessing, actually, to have this kind of support to actually be able to to hit the road to talk about the book and to promote the book, but also to listen to other people talk about and around the book. I call it my listening tour because I find myself in different cities talking to people about their own views and experiences and thoughts uh, about race and about family History and about capturing legacy and generational issues and and as a journalist as someone who's who's hungry for that kind of experience, this has been a really wonderful thing
2: mm.
0: but you've had to do a lot of talking yourself and yes, about yourself
1: I have. I have i have um but you know it, 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 I want this uh process to lead to a conversation, and in a good conversation, one person doesn't do all the talking uh
0: well, this may be the exception. I want you to do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, This book began uh, with Barack Obama's election and your idea that maybe the dialogue, if that's the right word, about race in America might change as a result of his election, and and maybe it would be a good time to do a book about that, but somehow it ended up being a different book.
1: Well, I thought actually the dialogue had begun to change in the lead-up to his election, Mm -hmm. and that people were talking about race and thinking about race in a more animated way, and I was... Intensely curious about what that meant and what that conversation sounded like. So I wanted to actually try to put an ear to it. And I thought I would do that by trying in some way to listen to private conversations, the things that you don't necessarily hear on cable television or even on NPR. Um, but as I, st- as I began listening to these hidden conversations, I also began listening to hidden conversations of my own family and that's when I realized that there, there was much I didn't know, even though I thought I knew our family history and I thought I knew my parents and um, their parents and their stories so well, I realized that they had kept things from us. And the more I learned about these secrets, these discoveries, the more I realized that I probably was working on the wrong book.
0: <laughs> well, there, there are two big family secrets that you share in this book. One is about your grandmother, and the other is about your father. Um, can you tell us about those two?
1: Well, I learned that my father, who was a, a very gentle man, and he was a gentleman but also just a gentle man, very kind, uh, real by-the-book kind of guy. He was a postal worker. Both my parents were postal workers. And I learned that when he was much younger, um, in the year 1946, when he had just returned from his military service, that he was shot by a police officer, uh, a white police officer, when he was in Birmingham. And it was when the city was full of returning black war veterans who were trying to participate more fully in civic life and were met with a white wall of resistance. And he kept this to himself. He never talked about it, never told the kids. He never told my mother. She only learned about this recently. My father died in 1988, and, and he took that secret to his grave, it turns out that mom, my mother, who is still leaving, Betty Norris, also had a secret, something she never, ever, ever talked about. And she only began talking about it when I learned it. I learned about it this year when one of my uncles spilled the beans, so to say. And what he told me was that my grandmother, a woman I remember very well, was a very elegant woman who was a leader in the city, Founded a senior citizens program in Minneapolis that still bears her name. That when she was much younger, uh, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, she traveled around the Midwest working as an itinerant Aunt Jemima, doing pancake demonstrations for a farm woman, actually portraying the image of Aunt Jemima, dressing up as Aunt Jemima with the hoop scarf and the hoop skirt and the headscarf and all that. And, And my mother just hated this story. And she never talked about it. Mm. Those were the sort of two big tentpole secrets. But mm-hmm. there were a lot of, you know, a lot of smaller revelations that I, that I made along the way. That, that I think really give the book a certain texture because both of those experiences pulled me into the past, and I spent a lot of time exploring what America was like in that period and learning quite a bit uh, about the sort of hidden history that we stopped talking about.
0: Now the shooting of your father. Let's not uh, leave that a complete mystery for people. You did find out what happened.
1: Well, what what happened was my uncle. Um, b- these stories came out both from uncles on different sides of the family. My mother's side, of my father's side. My my uncle was only able to give me sketchy detail, partly because he was in the military when my father was shot back in Birmingham, and and partly because he once he once he blurted it out, he realized that he actually regretted that and and wasn't just eager to, to tell me, you know, to fill in the details, to tell me much more about it. So I had to go through this anthropological exercise. And what I discovered was um, that my father was attempting to enter a public building. He was going to an event one evening. And he was um, stopped by police officers who tried to tell him that he couldn't enter. And my father, this person I remember is this very mild mannered man, stood up to the police officers which in 1946, Birmingham, Alabama, would be a very, very dangerous thing to do. And a scuffle ensued, and the police officer's gun went off, and my father was wounded. The bullet grazed the side of his leg. It was a superficial wound. But I had to try to then figure out what what kind of emotional wound he was left with since he kept this a secret and, and what that meant for him because he fled Alabama shortly after that. He, he couldn't stay in, in Birmingham. He went first to Boston and then ultimately to join the rest of his brothers in Chicago. They all left one by one.
0: You know, in reading about the incident, um, your father refusing to be intimidated, I would think that would be something you could be proud of. I mean, there's nothing shameful about that from what I could see. Why, why do you think he didn't want you to know about it?
1: You know, the easy explanation is that it's painful
0: hmm.
1: and that it's easy just to, you know, to leave something that's painful behind. But I had an opportunity to talk to other veterans and other people who remember what life was like in Alabama at that time. But the veteran stories were were, were particularly useful to me because, like my father, they served in a military that, at that point, had a strict code of segregation. They were marginalized, when they served in the U.S. Armed Forces. And then they were marginalized for, further when they returned to a country um, that they loved but didn't necessarily love them back. And these veterans that I spoke to, to a person, just stopped talking about that period of their life. They just put it behind them, said, that's, that's over, I'm moving on. And in moving on, they seem to have created this narrative for their life that was built around success and model behavior. Instead of moving forward in anger, which would would have been really easy to do, they instead move forward as these,
2: you
1: know, in, in some ways model minorities, trying to prove through the way they carried themselves, through the way they kept their homes, through the way they comported themselves when they were in the workplace, um, to, to show America what it could be. And that, that goes to the title of the book, The Grace of Silence, because they kept those stories to themselves, uh, because they didn't want to pass them on to their kids. They didn't want their kids to to be poisoned by the pain and the indignities that they experienced. And in doing that, I, as much as I regret not talking to my father about this, I have to admit that I probably benefited from that. Mm. And I think in profound ways, the country benefited from that. You know, by by moving forward with hope instead of charging forward with anger, they shoved the whole country forward. <laughs>
0: And you well know just how unfashionable that idea you just put out is.
1: You mean to keep things to yourself? Yeah,
0: to well, yeah, you know, it's, it's, to bottle it's it up.
1: especially in this era, you know, where people are so highly confessional, I mean, go on Twitter and, <laughs> and you know, and just look at what people are talking about all the time. I, I, I think right you know, at this point, we're considering far too many things. In, in America um, all the time and, you know, in sort of open forms. The stoicism that that generation uh, ig- it- it exhibited would is, is just, you know, it's something that is seemingly foreign to,
2: um, you
1: know, in American discourse today.
0: Um, you write that your dad wanted um, most of all to be ordinary. And yeah. events like that reminded him that he wasn't ordinary, that society would never let a black man in his of his generation, be completely ordinary.
1: You know, in that era before the Civil Rights Movement, um, before there were um, collective and well-organized demands for fair housing and and uh, equal opportunities in education and in the workplace, the, the demands that the men that I spoke to and the women too of that generation voiced were were really simple. They just wanted to do ordinary things. They wanted to live where they wanted to live. They wanted to go in a restaurant and and sit down at the counter, and uh, and have something cool to drink and something warm to eat. They wanted to to be able to take their kids to swimming pools. They they you know just all these little simple things that were denied them were what they aspired to, and uh, moving on and then ultimately living fairly ordinary lives you know having in my parents case having a um, you know a home in a middle class neighborhood with a white picket fence and a prodigious garden and a car that was you know always kept <laughs> in such a pristine fashion that you could you know apply your makeup in the chrome because it was you know <laughs> was gleaming all the time you know that for them was a slice of heaven
0: well to to achieve that sort of ordinary america dream took um I'll use a term that's overused these days, but I feel like it applies. took a certain level of heroism uh courage to settle in that Minneapolis neighborhood. They were the first black home buyers in that neighborhood uh, in fact um i, I think this, this is a bit of distinction your family has of actually starting some white flight in, in minneapolis uh, in yeah, this part of Minneapolis, yeah. but, but they to were do all that moved
2: out
1: when they moved in. <laughs> and this was one of those small revelations because I didn't really know this. When I first started talking about my grandmother's work as a traveling angel, my mother hated the story. She didn't want to talk about it. She said, Those things are in the past. Don't ask me about that. But slowly, she began talking more, and those stories started coming out. And when that spigot opened, I learned a lot about our life in Minneapolis that I didn't quite understand. I was the youngest, so when they first moved in, I was not yet born. And I grew up in a very integrated community on the south side of Minneapolis, and I always assumed that that's just the way it was, that, that you know this was this easily integrated community. I didn't realize that there was a sort of rough road um, to diversity in our happy little rainbow community. And my parents started that, that little real estate revolution. And when they moved in, all the neighbors whose property line touched ours and a few of them across the street from our home promptly moved out.
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: It takes nerve to do that though to be the first um you know to be alone in that way.
1: It does. It takes nerve to to be the first and then to stay there. Yeah. You know to um not pick up and run. And to <laughs> and it takes a lot of gumption to do some of the things that I learned that my mother used to do. I mean, my mom saw the opportunity to make mischief for their families who did not get out fast enough, and as a result, had a really hard time selling their homes. There was a family next door that uh, that just couldn't sell their house because, it, in order, they, they'd have to find a buyer who would be willing to live directly next to a black family. At that point, what they would have called them a Negro family, and and uh, it, it wasn't happening for them. And my mother saw how people would realize, you know, who lived next door and skedaddle out of there and so she started to make mischief if she saw prospective buyers pull up to check out the house next door to ours, she would immediately send my sisters out in the backyard to play. And so the buyers would say, Oh, 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 I see who lives next door. I don't I don't I don't know if I'm ready for this. So she would do that that purposely and when she talks about the story, I write about this in the book um, and, it's it's you know, it's a delightful story to, to hear from her now. Um, but it was, I guess, one way she coped. She said that when she saw prospective buyers come out, she would chuckle to herself and say, Showtime! <laughs> She'd walk out in the yard and um, either send my sisters out in the yard or walk into the yard herself. And she was very pregnant at that point, and, and it was because she was carrying me in her belly. So that was um, a way that she exercised a little bit of defiance to say, I'm here and I'm staying, and y'all just better get used
2: to it. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, how did you feel about your parents when you learned these things?
1: I felt that they were a lot stronger than I understood. I mean, I always knew that they were exceptional. I've always had, you know, great um, affection and fondness and admiration and, you know, the things that we normally think about our parents. But I realized that that they had a little place in history, And it made me think about history a little bit differently because we always think of history with a capital H, the stuff we learn about in textbooks or when we watch public broadcasting and listen to documentaries on the radio. That We think about it as, you know, heroes make history, titans make history. And the fact is that everyday people make history every day in lots and lots and lots of little ways. And that my parents were part of that. When we think about the you know, the the move toward integration in this country, and we've come up with a convenient narrative for the civil rights movement and and the move toward integration, and it's usually wrapped around a series of events in the mid to late 60s, and it's tied to marches in Selma and Montgomery and Birmingham and and Greensboro and sit-ins there and other places like that. But I realize that all of these things happen bit by bit by bit, and in the case of integration, it happens bus ride by bus ride, and mortgage application by mortgage application, and hiring decision by hiring decision, and that individuals are a part of that, and often those individuals choose not to trumpet their achievements. They, they don't really talk about the small ways that they've made history, and that's such a shame because then that history is lost to us. I mean, if, if my uncles had not blurted these things out in these moments of great disinhibition, I may never have known these stories, mm. and, and they've been as painful as they are. It's such a gift to me, and it's such a gift to my children that I can now pass them, this on to them, and that's the thread that I, I think runs through the book, that, that little question, that core question. How well do you know the people who raised you? You know, they, they sometimes don't tell you everything about themselves because they want you to see the best of them, and they don't want to burden you. With their frustrations. But at some point, you have to try to draw out that history because it's yours. And it, it's yours by right. And if you don't take the opportunity to draw those stories out from your loved ones, they sometimes can take take those stories, take their histories, take your legacy to the grave. And it's such a shame when that happens.
0: A couple of um, bits of family history we've talked about. Uh, your father Standing up to a policeman, uh, your parents integrating an all-white uh, neighborhood in Minneapolis—those are things, you know. Again, uh, I think to be proud of. Did you have a harder time with the um, with the the news that your grandmother had had to play this Aunt Jemima role?
1: I, in all honesty, didn't go immediately to shame. I was more fascinated by this. Um, fascinated in an odd way because the image didn't match the image that I had in my head of the grandmother that I remembered. My grandmother Ion Brown was this very stylish woman and very bossy in her own way and someone who was always very polished and well put together. It's not you just you wouldn't look at her and think Aunt Jemima. But I was fascinated also because she was doing things that women in the main didn't do. At that period of time, I mean, women really didn't travel by themselves, and black women certainly didn't travel. And then when I found newspaper clippings about her work, I saw that she didn't speak of her own work in, in shameful terms. She talked to the reporters about how she would focus on um, the children, because she knew that they had not seen people of color before, that she would speak in a certain way, and that she would sing gospel songs, because she wanted the people in these towns to know that she was a church-going woman, that she used this role, which really easily could have been um, an exercise in, in, you know, pardon me, but buffoonery.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And instead, used it as a a way to lift herself up through her income that she earned, but also her people up through the way she comported herself. And, and the more I learned about Aunt Jemima, the more fascinated I became because I realized that what she was doing was, in, I guess, exercising the same kind of mischief that my mom mm-hmm. used in sending, you know, the girls out into the yard when prospective buyers were trying to buy the house next door, that Grandma wouldn't speak in the way that Aunt Jemima was supposed to speak, at least according to the narrative that Quicker had developed for Aunt Jemima, this highly fictional, this totally fictional character, who, if you picked up newspaper magazines at the time, spoke in a sort of slave patois. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was lazy, la this, and I served some temptalizing pancakes, and they would spell all this out phonetically to let you know that she didn't, you know, use proper English. And my grandmother apparently absolutely used proper language and proper English when she went to these small towns. So Quaker Oats got a little bit more than it bargained for when they hired Ione Brown. And (laughs) discovering that made it go down a little bit easier for my mom as well.
0: You know, thinking to to what it must have been like to have to live in that world, uh, as an African-American, I can easily imagine, you know, outrage and uh, humiliation and shame, but I can also imagine another conclusion, which is, you know, white people are crazy. Uh, all the mistreatment and um you know indignities that were inflicted on black Americans in so many parts of the country um i 'm curious to know what what way you think your parents took all that
1: you know it's it, it, my parents had long and enduring friendships with white Americans in their neighborhood back in Alabama. you know my father had friendships across the color line my my family taught us as children to look for the good in people and not to – I mean, little lessons that you get, you know, in Sunday school and in church and at the dinner table, don't judge all people. If something bad happens to you, that doesn't mean that everything is, is – um, that, that they represent everyone or, you know, everything about that kind of people. They, they passed on those lessons, and then they modeled that behavior in the way that they live their lives. And these were sort of simple things that I just sort of took for granted. I thought all oh, kids hear, heard these things, and I thought, you know, they were just saying the things that parents are supposed to say. i now realize that it, it took a lot for them to say those things because it would have been easy for them to come to a different conclusion based on, on some of their experiences. And I now know in the wisdom of um, or in the, the, what passes for wisdom at this point in my life <laughs> that it's easy to ascribe you know, positive things and negative things or good behavior and evil behavior um, when it comes to race. And it's easy to, you know, to, to take sides and put people in, in opposite corners, but it's usually a lot more complicated than that. I mean, in during the research for this book, I wanted to know what life was like on the other side of the color line. For instance, in 1946 Alabama, so I tried to learn as much about the police officers as I could. What I realized is the police officers... Um, that were involved in my dad's shooting and the officers on the force at that time lived lives that were alarmingly similar to my grandparents' lives. Um, They lived in houses that were a lot like the house my dad grew up in, in Birmingham. They were country folk who usually came to Birmingham looking for good jobs. Same with my dad's people. They were marginalized themselves to some degree because the police force that was held in much higher esteem was the police force uh, for the steel mills at that time, they, they they were better paid, they had better uniforms, they had shinier badges, they had cars that were bigger and better and more prestigious at that moment. And, and the police officers who were on the Birmingham Police Force, not the private police force, had their own sort of baggage at that time because all these men, black and white, were coming back after serving in the military, and these are men who didn't go off to war. And so we're carrying around baggage because of that, for whatever reason, you know, why they, because they were older or because they... They couldn't enlist, so they they had lives that were somewhat complicated. I'm not excusing their behavior in any way, um, and I'm you know not ascribing. I'm not, I'm not saying that that explains you know what happened on that February evening with my father, but I do know that it's it's a lot harder to just paint an easy picture and to just say this was good and this was evil because, particularly when it comes to race, it's a little bit more complicated than that.
0: Mm. The fact remains that one group of people was singled out for scapegoating and and worse. However hard the lives of the people doing the scapegoating, doing these kinds of things,
1: and and passing it on generationally, mm-hmm. you know, and and one of the reasons I wanted to understand what life was like for them is because the world shifted under their feet, and and they had to get used to that. You know, there was no stopping that train at some point. And not everybody wanted that change to happen. There were a lot of people who enjoyed segregation, who enforced segregation, who to this day are not happy that those rules and strictures and customs and traditions changed and you know and they still walk among us and I thought it was important as um as a journalist um and a, and as someone who tries to um be fair in the way I tell stories that I wanted to hear from them. I wanted to know what life was like. For for them as well, and what their thoughts are now, and and I heard things that you know made my hair stand on end. I really did.
0: Well, well, tell me what what did you hear?
1: Well, you know, in talking to um, you know, there's one one of the woman who's related to one of the police officers who was talking about how she just can't get used to the changes in this country. She can't get used to picking up a paper and seeing um, an African American president. She just she just can't get used to it, and she can't get used to the way that that black people carry themselves now, like they're, they're um, expecting too much or they think too much of themselves. And she talked about how surprised she was uh, about the election of Barack Obama because she thought that someone would set their sights on him. And, you know, she said that, and a chill went down my back because I knew exactly what she was talking about.
0: She's telling this to you, a journalist who happens to be an African-American. So, well, I'm, I can only imagine what she might say when she wasn't in the company of African-Americans? Well, you
1: know, I don't know. I mean, maybe her filters weren't engaged. Maybe yeah. she she felt that she, she could say whatever she wanted to say whenever she wanted to say it. Um, because there is a... I have learned something that at some point in life that um, people who are a bit up in age do experience a bit of disinhibition and are more willing to
2: speak mm. with
1: candor than the rest
2: of us. <laughs> so I'm
1: not going to assume that, that she you know would say something to um, to people who are also Caucasian that she wouldn't say to me. But, you know, people might immediately dismiss her statements and say, oh, how awful that she said that. I, I actually in some way honor her for her candor because you understand that perspective once you've heard it. You know, that's the thing about about dealing with, um, not necessarily dealing with race because race is something else, but dealing with racism is, is one of those things that you, you sometimes can – You suspect that people hold these attitudes, you suspect that that's why people are doing or saying what they're doing, but it's not always easy to prove. And um, in those rare moments where where people speak with candor, it makes you, it it helps you understand where that comes from and, and how much of that there still is in the world and what we have to do to deal with that.
0: Do you do you think? Um, getting back to my my previous question, do you think much about um, your identity as African American when you interview people about race? Do you um, think about how who you are might affect their answers? I mean, just as I would imagine a, a thoughtful white journalist would also think. You know, am I getting the answers that a black journalist would get?
1: Well, it, I don't. I think about my identity all the time, but in a slightly different way. I mean, it's it's one of the things that that when we did this series of
2: on on
1: race with that I did with Steve Inskeep, where we talked to a series of diverse voters in New York, it was one of the revelations for Steve, for instance, who's who's white, was how often people of color do think about their racial identity. It's um, you're reminded of it. You you know, you think when you walk into a store, um, what do people see? It's it's harder to to dismiss that. It's something that I probably I'm going to be honest, I probably think about it more often than Robert and Melissa think about their racial identity.
0: You're talking about your two co-hosts of all things considered yes, Robert Siegel yes, and Melissa Block. Yeah.
1: And I don't, you know, I just think that's a fact of a fact of life uh, in in America when we think about race, we usually attach people of color to that term. So if we're you know, you ask me about my work that I do as a journalist, whether I think about it. Well, if we're going to do a discussion on race, chances are they're going to turn to me for my thoughts before we mm-hmm. turn to Robert or Melissa. Mm-hmm. Chances are, when we go through our rolodex or start burning the dial to determine who we're going to talk to, that we're going to reach out first to people of color. And you know, I understand why we do that, and there's this you know tradition of doing that. But I'm also slightly disappointed that we continue to do that, and I hope that we move. Past the point where that's our automatic default position, or those are the only things that we do, or the only calls we make, because race is all of our story.
2: You
1: know, the, the story of race in America is not just—it doesn't just belong to African Americans, and 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 frankly, it doesn't just belong to Black people or White people either. Race is often seen as a binary construct, and and, and you know, walk down the street, and you'll see how wrong that is. <laughs> um, you know, America is is multi-hued, and 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 so I'm I'm aware of it in in all of those ways, and um, and I try in my way to broaden the discussion and, and you know, when we do these kinds of stories, to say, well, you know, maybe we should hear from someone white as well. Um, but I also know, you know, on the other side, that there are things that I might be able to contribute to that conversation because of the path that I've traveled.
0: I want to get back to something you said a while ago. Um... You, the host or one of the hosts of All Things Considered on NPR, literally said maybe we consider too much in America these days.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I made a mental note when I heard that.
1: Well, you know, I I said that based on on looking at a at a Twitter feed not long ago and I think there was someone talking out loud about a ham sandwich. You know, I I don't I don't know if I need to know that. Uh, <laughs>
0: Oh well, you were just thinking of that kind of trivia huh
1: <laughs> But
0: but it, it, you know the the name of the book is The Grace of Silence you've already said that you thought your parents decision not to share certain things about their lives with you was a graceful thing to do a um maybe an empowering thing to do um are you of a divided mind about your own profession which is after all bringing just about everything to light I mean not letting silence
1: prevail no, and here's why. People think that the most important thing I do on the radio is talk. <laughs> and really, the most important thing we do on the radio as radio journalists is listen, is to create a space for other people to tell their stories, um, particularly in the place where we choose to practice our craft. We let people finish their sentences, we let people complete their thoughts. And, you know, that's increasingly rare in the broadcast landscape.
0: Uh, I thought as a joke maybe I'd start shouting at you at this point, <laughs> uh, cutting you off. You, you would really shock our <laughs>
1: listeners because you don't, you don't hear a lot of shouting. <laughs> not our style.
0: Um, but uh, you do think your parents' decision to to to, to stay mum on some subjects might have been the right one.
1: I think it was the right decision for them, and I know I benefited from it. At the same time, I hope that my book, even though it is entitled The Grace of Silence, will spark discussions. I want it to get people talking. I want it to get people thinking about their own their own legacies, not just their racial legacies, but their own legacies, their own family legacies. And I hope that it does um, animate people's thinking on race in some way and maybe get them talking about that, too. And in, in that sense, there you know, you practice the grace of silence in another form, and that's creating a space where you can hear someone else out and listen to them, even if what they serve up is painful or even what they have to say is something you do not agree with.
0: Mm. Do you ever find yourself, though, thinking, oh, maybe I'm digging too deep into this person's private life and I should back off, or I wish I hadn't asked that question?
2: I...
1: I you know, not that often. I mean, because I look for for clues, and if I feel like I'm pushing someone too hard, then I realize that. Well, maybe we're going to close down for now. Now, I'm talking about in the research I was doing for the book. It's hard to do that when you're a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's my job to ask questions and to do it with respect and to do it sometimes in a tough way. But to you know, I'm talking about my journalism, my role as a journalist now. It's my job as a journalist to ask questions and to be respectful and sometimes to be tough. People don't have to answer the questions, but I do have to ask them. That's what's expected of me, um, you know, by my employer, and I think that's what's expected—that's what's expected of me by our listeners. And um, and I don't, you know, I, I, I think if you do it if you if you do it with honor and uh, and with respect and with integrity. You're not doing something that is tawdry or um, or uncomfortable. People might be uncomfortable with the fact that that you're asking the question, and, and if so, they they don't necessarily have to have to answer. But um, you know, what is it the teachers used to tell us? There are no stupid questions, or you know. <laughs> you know? I, I guess I, I took them at their word when they said that.
0: You you um, majored in electrical engineering. Is that right?
1: I did. I did, and I changed my major. Uh-huh. I was three and a half years in electrical engineering, and then,
0: and then changed course to to journalism. What happened to you that made you I, want to become I a journalist? I just wasn't.
1: I wasn't very good at, <laughs> at the engineering. I mean, I was great in math and science, and I I just didn't. I didn't. It didn't light my fire. I I wound up uh, serving uh, an internship. I had a great internship, and. Uh, the work, instead of making me more interested in the field, made me realize that it was very isolating work. And I spent um, a lot of time in a lab with a small group of people, and the work was was really interesting, but I wanted to do something that would allow me to follow my curiosity. I wanted um, wanted to tell stories, and I wanted to write, and I didn't want to be so isolated. And so I decided to transfer to journalism. I always liked to write. I'd written for my high school paper, and um, before before I had gone to college, and and decided to uh, change my major, and I studied engineering at the University of Wisconsin, and I transferred to the University of Minnesota, and um, and that's where I finished up. And once I made the move to journalism, I didn't look back.
0: I kind of like the idea of someone raised by parents who were sitting on all this unspoken and powerful family history, Becoming someone who unearths stories, you know, and history.
1: It, there were moments where I felt that this came to me for a reason, that my uncles, who, you know, on each side of the family, who told me these secrets, that, you know, of all the cousins, I have this wide diaspora of cousins, of all of them, that I was the one who who had this information. And maybe it's because of the work that I do. Maybe they, in their way, thought that I should be the conservator of, of, these, of this history and you know, to do something with it. But if I had followed a different path, you know, it's a great question, because if I had followed a different path and I had worked as an electrical engineer, Mm. I'm not sure that I would have been able to unpack the story in quite this way.
0: When you started a book project, you had in mind uh, the election of Barack Obama and the uh, new, as you call it, unprecedented, hidden and robust conversation about race that was taking place across the country. Do you think those words apply to what's happened since then?
1: Well, I think the conversation is not necessarily new, but I think it's still robust. (laughs) And I think it's still sometimes largely hidden or even coded. And one of the benefits of this um, monster book tour that I'm doing where I'm traveling to 30-plus cities is that I get to hear that conversation that I had set out to listen to when I first started this journey, when I thought I was writing that other book, that I um, talk to people about their experiences and their thoughts on race, and uh, I'm able to capture that conversation in lots of different venues, and I'm also able to capture it on the the website that I've created. There's a um, website that's associated with the book. It's at michelle-norris.com. If you dash off to the website, you will you can learn a lot more about the book and some of the things I learned and um, history leading up to the civil rights movement, history that was unknown to me um, regarding black World War II veterans, and you'll learn a lot about um, Aunt Jemima and how she came to be. Um, But you'll also have a chance to participate in this ongoing conversation because there's a section called Your Stories, and people leave their stories and their thoughts and some of the things that they've learned about family members um, as they've tried to un, uh, uncover their own family legacy, and uh, it's, it's you know it's a wonderful opportunity to to look at what other people have to say or to engage in a conversation with them because through the comment stream, then people start talking to each other. So it's a place where the conversation can continue.
0: What do you think, though, of I'm I'm going to use my own label, the exoticization of Barack Obama that's been happening lately the fears that he's a Muslim, that he's not a U.S. citizen, that he's a Kenyan anti-colonialist. Um, you know, it, I, I got the sense that when you said a new robust conversation was beginning, that um, some old stereotypes maybe would finally be put to rest.
1: I, I You know, I didn't expect that. I, I was not among the people who thought that we had <laughs> entered a post-racial period uh-huh. and that we would, um, you know, dispense of any need to talk about race. In fact, I had a, a different point of view. I thought we were entering something that might be called a most racial period. Mm-hmm. That um, with uh, an African American leading the country, serving as the commander in chief, um, commanding the news cycle day after day after day, that we would be thinking about race in new and different, and uh, and you know more robust ways. I didn't think that race would go away. In fact, I thought it would move to. Um, that it it would it would not necessarily be that we were always talking about race, but race might become an ingredient in lots of other discussions uh, because that you know because of the role he serves and because of the docket that he deals with all the time and and because this is a country where not long ago the you know the idea of there there were lots of laws and many customs and practices that um were quite overt. That were designed to make sure that that men of color did not gain any kind of authority at all, so the idea that someone would be serving um in the role of commander in chief and as the president of the United States would you know for my father's generation for for them to consider something like that would be like trying to reach out and and uh and you know tap the moon i mean it it would it would be unheard of, so it would it wasn't surprising to me that the country, that there would be reverberations and that people would be thinking out loud and, um, and and trying to figure that out in in lots and lots of ways. And I think that's some of what we're hearing, but I also think that, um, and I, I know this based on some of the reporting that I did, that this is a case where it gets kind of murky because I, I know that I talk to white Americans in the South who say, you know, they feel like they can't criticize Barack Obama without immediately being labeled a, a racist. And uh, I I guess I have to believe that there's something to that, too. You know, so it's, um, I, I I, I will, you know, in my thought by saying this, though, I, I certainly did not think that we were entering a period where we would stop talking about race. Um, just because they could say, okay, we've elected a black man to the White House. Check. Done with that.
0: Hmm. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. For this time. Thank
1: you. All the best to you. You made this fun. All right. All right. Take
0: Great. care. Bye-bye. Bye. This interview is a production of the 7th Avenue Project. Learn more and hear more at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for listening.